0: We're back, or I'm back in Genesis. Nikki was there last week. We we come out of our quick three-week series of um, what did we do? We did Ascension, we did Pentecost, and we did Trinity. Um, And Nikki brought us back into Genesis last week. Spoke about the flood, um, and covered a, a story that was much more difficult than I think we'd ever imagined. Right, Nikki? Right, because Noah isn't a fluffy kid story; it's a hard, hard story. And in that vein, I'm going to talk today about what happened after the flood, which um, I mean, think, Nikki thinks she had the hardest session of the series, but I've I've got it um, <laughs> because I'm talking about after after the after the flood, which is also. Um, it's it's not uh, not the easy thing to preach on. So anyway, let's 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 in. We're we a wee bit tight for time, so I'm going to try and just stick to my script as much as possible here. So so God's judgment of humanity by means of the flood involved a rehearsal of creation itself. Nikki told us that last week. And in, in creating the earth, so when God created the earth, God took unformed matter. So the earth was formless and empty. Hebrew was tohu wabohu. I just love saying it. Tohu wabuhu, to create the cosmos over six days. And then the flood took creation back a step where the, the waters and the earth came together again. And it was in tohu wabohu again. It was chaos and all mixed up. And when the waters receded, Noah and his family emerged from the ark and God made a covenant with Noah um, that reestablished established creation so we have the creation order back again so in essence Noah is a second Adam Noah is the 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 new Adam in this reset or recreation um, of the earth and from Noah all people descend so that's great then eh so we're good the floods sorted all the problems out and everybody lived happily ever after no, unfortunately not. Everything's not good again, unfortunately. You know, I would have loved this story to be I'd be able to come up and say, look, that's us guys. The flood resolved all the issues, we're good to go. Everything's now good again. Mankind will return to the familiar um, or will return to the, the, the creative order rather than the pre-flood order. But unfortunately The reality is that mankind returned to the free pre-flood pattern of disobedience and sin. And sadly, the next part of the Genesis story, there's a lot of bad news in it. However, we are going to land with good news, right? Because we're we're going to look to Jesus. And this morning we come to what has been described by many commentators as a rather bizarre story. So, this is the last account of Noah's life. So, Noah, who have this amazing like, narrative um, that Nikki spoke about last week, this story of redemption and recreation. That's a, a, an incredible story. And then we get something like 10 or 11 verses that give an account of the rest of Noah's life. If that was me, I would, I would be wanting a better obituary than what, what Noah got here. It's not. It's not a very lengthy one. But anyway, this is what we have. So it says as Genesis 9, verse 18. The sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was peopled. Noah, a man of the soil, was the first to plant a vineyard. I've planted a vineyard. How about that? Um, he drank some of the wine and became drunk, and he lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father, "'And told his two brothers outside. "'Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, "'laid it on both their shoulders, "'and walked backward, "'and covered the nakedness of their father. "'Their faces were turned away, "'and they did not see their father's nakedness. "'When Noah awoke from his wine "'and knew what his youngest son had done to him, "'he said, "'Cursed be Canaan. "'Lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers.' "'He also said, "'Blessed by the Lord my God be Shem, "'and let Canaan be his slave.' May God make space for Japheth and let him live in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his slave. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years and he died. I mean, that is a brief retelling of the rest of Noah's life, right? Now, to be honest with you, when we were planning this series, I just wanted to skip over the story and I didn't want it to land on me talking about it because it's not a pleasant story and it's not a particularly encouraging story. And as a pastor, I want to build people up. My heart is soft for people. I, I want to talk about the redemptive love of Jesus and how... No matter our circumstances in life and what we go through, Jesus can change that round and redeem it. And this story, when you're telling this story, there's a lot in it that goes wrong. The word curse is used a lot. But I want to talk about blessing. And then I read the Bible and I read Genesis and it keeps talking about curses. So it's like, oh, I'm going to talk about curses. So I'm just laying that out there that that this, this isn't a, This isn't a talk that I've enjoyed putting together. But I have managed to land it in a good place. And now I feel good about it. Because it's going to land, we're going to land in the redemptive love of Jesus. Okay? So that's just to give you a bit of hope for the next few minutes as we go through a few difficult things. So when you read this one short passage about the remainder of Noah's life after the flood, it is quite difficult to comprehend or understand what God is trying to tell us through this story. One of my goals when, when I preach is to always try to understand myself or to understand for myself what it is that God is saying in a particular passage or book uh, or chapter before I share it with you. And I'm just got, I've got to be honest to say re- I've really struggled with some of the understanding of what goes on in this passage. And actually, as I've looked into and studied Genesis these past few months, I've discovered that there's a, there, there, there was a lot more in the book of Genesis that I didn't understand than what I thought I understood, yeah? So we have to be honest about these things that, that quite often it's felt like I've been, I've been walking a fine line between those things that I've got a good grasp on and those things that I'm still trying to work out. But that, that's okay, right? Because we don't all know everything. And if anybody stands up here and tells you that they've got all of this stuff nailed down, then don't believe them, right? Don't believe them, because if they did, they would be God himself, right? It's very difficult to work out. So when we read Genesis, we should always keep in mind that it's written written as a book of history. In other words, Genesis falls into a, a, a genre of being historical writings, and the main author of Genesis was Moses. Who wrote it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit? Scripture tells us that, that all, spirit is, all scripture is God breathed by the Spirit of God. And Moses wrote about these events using his own words and his own writing style, but it was the Holy Spirit who inspired him to choose what parts of the story to write. Now, the reason I'm telling you this is because when we read Genesis, we have to read it as history, we have to read it in the context in which it was written. That is, recognize who it was written to and in what circumstances, and understand that within this historical narrative, there are many profound spiritual truths that are taught within it. So I'm only going to pick a few out from this story, but there's much more in it. Now it's widely agreed that Moses wrote Genesis in the time between Israel's captivity in Egypt, and the reaching of the promised land in Canaan. That is during Israel's 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. Also, I think it's important that that we're aware that the, the scriptures are nuanced. They are open to interpretation, and we should be careful before taking one passage or one book or one chapter or one verse and build a belief system or a doctrine around that. The scriptures are a complete book. They're all, all the books in the book are connected. And the, quite often we can read one scripture and read another and it can appear to contradict each other, which is why we have to study and navigate each part of the word in the correct context and weigh up our conclusion and understanding based on the whole and not just the part. Okay? You with me on that? Okay. Now, if we take our text this morning as an example, we see Noah mess things up by getting drunk and severely embarrassing himself. So in isolation, we could easily build an anti-drinking or an anti-alcohol doctrine from this passage. So I'm going to attempt to describe how I think this passage sits in the context within the narrative of the whole Bible and ultimately how it points towards Jesus. Okay, are we, are we good with that? Right, I'm just trying to take you on each layer here as we go through it. Now, there were probably thousands of other historical events that the Holy Spirit could have inspired Moses to write about Noah. I mean, Noah lived for 350 years after the flood, and Moses could no doubt have written about all the things that, about Noah's life, all kinds of things about Noah's life, but instead he focuses in on this one incident in Noah's sin. And then on the sin of Noah's son Ham. So, the whole 350 years of Noah's life after the flood, we don't know much about what he's doing, but we get this. Now, keep in mind that over a thousand years have gone by since Adam and Eve. So, it's a thousand years since they first sinned. And the flood has wiped out all human life except for Noah and his family. But the Holy Spirit is wanting us who read this story to know that the war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman is still raging on. Okay, remember we spoke about that a few weeks ago in the Cain and Abel story. So this battle is still going on. It's still being fought. It's a different world now after the flood, but this spiritual battle is still taking place. So as we look at we're going to look at Genesis 9, 18 to 19, and then work our way from there. So we see in these first two verses, Noah and his sons come out of the ark. So it says this The sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the whole earth was peopled. God has shown himself faithful and preserved Noah and his family through the flood, and they get to work fulfilling God's creation command of filling the whole earth. So Noah was given the same command that God gave to Adam and Eve to fill the earth and multiply it. And they're, they're, they're doing that. But here we get the sons of Noah described a bit more fully, which is really important because it says in verse 19 that from these, the whole earth was peopled. So these three sons of Noah, all the descendants of the world, everyone who lives now, they're, they're their um, genealogy goes back to Ham, Shem or Japheth. So that's important, right? Because it's good to know where it came from. So if you were going to do an episode of Who Do You Think You Are, you, you should be able to eventually trace your genealogy back to one of these three guys. So, But as well as his three sons, we're also introduced to a grandson of Noah called Canaan. So with his three sons, who peopled all the earth, everyone is descended from. And we have a mention of a grandson called Canaan, okay? So we're just just gonna hold that thought up here and we'll come back to that. So verse 20, 21 goes on, it says, Noah, a man of the soil, so he was a farmer, was the first to plant a vineyard. He drank some of the wine and became drunk and he lay uncovered in his tent. So Noah plants a vineyard, he makes some wine and gets drunk. Now often this story is told, it's like Noah got off the ark and then immediately he's like, job done boys, glad that's all over. I'm away for a drink, right? I need to relax. I need to, has been a tough few years. But that's not what happened at all. Because basically Noah has a farm. And on part of his farm he grew grapes because it says he planted a vineyard. Now this may have been a year after the flood, it may have been 50 years after the flood. We're not exactly sure how long after the flood it was, but we know it was at least long enough for Noah to plant a garden, establish a farm, grow crops, create a a, a vineyard, and for grapes to grow and ferment to make into wine. So we're looking at a significant period of time here. We're certainly looking at years. So anyway, going back to verse 18, we see a distinction here between Noah's sons. So it says, the sons of Noah who went out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. So it points to Ham as being the father of Canaan. Now this is this is where I, I love the Bible, right? So the reason that that's there, I believe, is so that the Bible is because the Bible is setting us up to get us something from this story about Ham and Canaan. The only grandson mentioned. And it does the same thing again in verse 22. Verse 22, And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So it's Ham, the father of Canaan. So in writing this story, Moses is intending for us to see the connection between Ham and Canaan. And as we will discover shortly, there's a connection between a curse that Noah puts kind of on ham, but he puts it directly onto his grandson, Canaan. And just again, very quick look at the context, when this time is being written, when this is being written, so we're in a period of time where the children of Virgil are wandering through the desert, and where is it they're heading to? Where's the destination? Canaan. Like the land of Canaan. Okay, are you getting, like, the Bible's not daft, right? It's setting us up here for something. Ham the father of Canaan and when Moses, is, he'd be speaking this out to the children of Israel and in the context of where they were in their life at that time, this would have a great deal of meaning. Right, so we've got a connection here between Ham and Canaan. So let's go on. So Noah gets drunk and it says, and Ham saw the nakedness of his father. Now there's lessons we can learn here. It could be that that sin or disobedience to God or bad decisions can lead us to disgrace. But not only that, our, our sin can also become an occasion for others to sin as well. Right? I know there's that saying, no man is an island. I came up with this one, that no, no sin is an island. No sin is independent of itself. We like to say to ourselves, this thing that I do in private, is not hurting anyone else or what happens behind closed doors. As long as it's not doing any harm, it's okay. But that actually isn't really reality. Because even if we sin in private and no one else sees it, it does change us, it affects us, and that will affect other people. Noah's drunkenness leads to another sin committed by son Ham. Now at first glance, what Ham does doesn't look like a big deal. Especially when you you see what the text says. When, When we look... The words it just says that Ham saw his father naked, but when you look at how the words are put together in the Hebrew, which i 'm not going to quote um, it doesn 't just mean that Ham glanced and happened to see his father lie naked there 's something in the language used in the Hebrew that, that suggests that Ham was was gazing at or lingering um, over his father 's nakedness now this is where the story gets a wee bit funny because there 's nothing Clear here about exactly what Ham did. There's nothing that tells us specifically that he was doing anything sexual or perverted, but there's a strong suggestion that he may have been, that there was more to this looking at his father's nakedness than just a glance over his shoulder. But what is clear though is that Ham looked at the difficult and embarrassing situation that his father was in with some level of satisfaction. It's kind of like he goes, ah, ah, look at my dad, drunk and naked, you know, mocking him. And then he goes and he tells his brother about it as if to cause further embarrassment to his father. And it seems that Ham was relishing in his father's situation. And so I guess we, we could land here and say... You know, there's a number of lessons we could learn here. We could, say, we could, we could teach a lesson about, against abusing alcohol. We could teach a lesson against in our father and mother or a lesson against immorality. So we could do that, but these, these are, are, are not for now. I believe that God wants us to look at something else today. Verse 22, Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. I think that when Ham spoke to his brothers, he fully expected his brothers to at the very least join him in the mocking of their father. But that's not what they did. Shem and Japheth showed their father respect, unlike Ham, even though their father had fallen into sin and embarrassment and had stumbled in his walk with God. And it's interesting because there's no doubt that Noah had sinned here he had taken the gifts that God had given them and, and used them for his own satisfaction. And it's easy for us to look at that and criticize it, but you know what? Look at the things that God has given us in life, and how often do we pursue the gifts of God for our own interest rather than for the things that God has given them for? But then in verse twenty-four, God actually uses Noah in the aftermath of his sinful state, to prophesy against Ham and Canaan. Verse 24, says, When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan. Lowest of slaves shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed by the Lord, my God, be Shem, and let Canaan be his slave. May God make space for Japheth and let him live in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his slave. Okay. This is the first time in scripture that we see God use someone else to prophesy. Prior to this point, God Himself had done all the talking. He'd spoke directly to Adam and Eve, to Noah, um, to the serpent, etc. He'd been the one who'd um, given the prophecy. So Noah had made the mistake, he'd made a terrible error in judgment, to say the least, but he was still God's man. Call of God was still on his life, he was still chosen by God, and in Noah's prophecy we see first that, that we see our first sign of redemption in this story. That in spite of Noah's son, God continues to use him and speak through him. And in Noah's prophecy we see both a curse and a blessing. So the, the curse is that Canaan Ham's son will suffer the consequences for his father's sin. Now that doesn't sound fair, right? It doesn't sound fair. Um, why would a grandfather curse his grandson for something his father had done? Well, remember the timeline here. Canaan was his grandson, but it's likely he wasn't a child. He would be a grown man because many years have passed since the flood. And many believe that, that, that Noah had already seen in Ham's son Canaan the evil traits that Noah had seen in his son he realised that Canaan was like the bad apple in the family and that the apple didn't fall far from the father's tree and that turns out to be prophetic because guess who was the nemesis of Abraham and the nation of Israel after they returned to the promised land anybody want to the Canaanites. See again who Moses is speaking to, who he's writing this to? The Canaanites were the nemesis of Abraham and the nation of Israel. See, the Canaanites, the descendants of Canaan, had grown from uh, depravity or the simple depravity of their patriarch Ham into a sexually debased society. Canaan was a culture that couldn't be any further away from what God wanted for his people. And in Leviticus 18, if you want to read through that, God warns the Israelites through Moses not to be like the Canaanites. And there's a whole list of things that you would just not even want to be close to or connected with. Like real depravity through that list. And so here we have Ham who sinned against his father and so Ham's son bears the consequences for Ham's sin. But also if you look ahead in the story, we see that this curse on Canaan as an anticipation of Canaan's sin or the sin of Canaan's descendants. In Genesis 15, God confirms his unconditional covenant with Abram. God promises Abram a multitude of descendants who will inherit the land in which Abram sojourns. And God then gives Abram a brief timeline of future events. So it says this in Genesis 15:13. Then the Lord said to Abram, you can be sure that your descendants will be strangers in a foreign land where they will be oppressed as slaves for 400 years. And in Genesis 15, 16, it says, after four generations, your descendants will return here to this land for the sins of the Amorites do not yet warrant their decision. okay guys, we're rushing through this. This is why this is such a difficult passage. So the Amorites are the descendants of someone called Amar. And amar is the fourth son of Canaan. Okay, so the Amorites are descendants of Canaan. And in Genesis 10, 15, we've got, we got a genealogy. So moving on to the next chapter, it says, Canaan became the father of Sidon, his firstborn, and Heth, and the Jebusites, the Amorites, the Gigashites. Okay, so we see that the Amorites are in this line of Canaan. Okay, are you with me? Right, we're not gonna sit in this wee bit for too long, so it's just, we need to get this direction of travel in. So the promises of Genesis 15 that God gave to Abram foretell the fallen events. One, that Abram would have many descendants, that those descendants would one day be taken captive and treated harshly, that after 400 years, Abram's descendants would return to Canaan and their return would coincide with God's judgment on the Amorites in Canaan. The Amorites, i.e. the descendants of Canaan. And these prophecies were fulfilled when after Joseph's death, Pharaoh enslaved the Israelites who were living in Egypt at the time for 400 years. Right? So that prophecy was fulfilled there. Moses brought the children of Israel out of Egypt to the borders of Canaan, and Joshua then led people, the people into Canaan and conquered the land. So in Genesis 15, Moses tells the Israelites to drive the Canaanites out of the land. And the Israelites had been in Egypt for around 400 years or so. And Genesis 15 says that part of the reason is because the iniquity of the Amorite or the descent of Canaan is not yet complete. Are you following my line here? Okay. So Israel had been separated from Canaan Canaan was living in a moral sin, idolatry, and rebellion, and God had given them 400 or so years to repent. Okay? So they're separate from Israel, from God's people. But God allowed them to carry on in the way of living for 400 years because he was giving them time to repent. But they didn't. But they don't repent and they won't repent. So God frees the Israelites from Egypt and brings them to the land of Canaan. And that's not only a fulfillment of his promise to Abraham, but it's also a fulfillment of the judgment and the curse upon Canaan and the story of Noah's sons. The people of Canaan were guilty of their own sin. Their religion and their practices included child sacrifice, idolatry, immoral sexual behavior, and divination. They were covering it all. Right? They were covering it all. And so in this prophecy of Noah's on Canaan, the son of Ham, a curse is pronounced in Canaan, but also in this prophecy we see God's grace as well. Because first of all, not all of Ham's children were cursed, only the Canaanites. And we see that Shem, Noah's son, is blessed. He said, blessed by the Lord my God be Shem and let Canaan be his slave. So the descendants of Shem are known as the Semites, out of whom the nation of Israel or the Jews are from. And in verse 27, we also see that Japheth is blessed in Shem. May God make space for Japheth and let him live in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be a slave. So the descendants of Japheth are the non-Jews. And so Moses is prophesying about how Gentiles will be grafted in to this covenant with Christ. Yeah? Jesus came to the Jews first and then Gentiles were grafted in. Brilliant, isn't it? Right? This is what has been prophesied here. And in verses 28 and 29, we see Moses, uh, Noah's obituary. So he gets two lines which say pretty much the same thing. He lived for 350 years after the flood and all his days were 950 years and then he died. What a life. So the flood has come and gone. We heard about that from Nikki last week. God has recreated the earth and given his authority to Noah, the only righteous man alive. But sin still existed. Noah was not able to destroy sin. Noah could only curse Canaan, but he couldn't change his heart. See, only Jesus can break the cycle of sin and misery that is passed on from generation to generation. The sin and the misery that's passed on through generations, that is what a curse is. It's an ongoing cycle of separation from God and doing our own thing. And so the war between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman continues on. There's one more important thing I want you to notice here, and again, it's got to do with God's grace and his redemptive nature. Part, part of my remit in this talk was to, go th- was to look at the genealogies in Genesis uh, in the next, the next chapter after this story. So I got, I got bogged down in that. I don't know where I went with that, because <laughs> it's a Anyway, that was a, that, that was, that's, that's a full day of my life I will never get back. So I'm saying. <laughs> but I want to look at another chapter. because in doing this. This is amazing what God pulled out. That's I, what I learned from going through. Don't skip over the genealogies, by the way. Try and sit there and go through it and then connect it up with other parts of scripture, right? Because I found something amazing. I want to look at another chapter that lists the genealogy of Abraham, who is a descent of Shem, through to Christ. This genealogy shows us that the promise of God to Shem is fulfilled in Christ. Matthew 1 verse 1, this is a record of the ancestors of Jesus the Messiah, a descendant of David and of Abraham. Well, here we go. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Peres was the, was the father of Hezron. Hezron was the father of Ram. Ram was the father of Aminadab. Aminadab was the father of Nashon. Nashon was the father of Salmon. Salmon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rehab. Then we just skip to verse 16. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary gave birth to Jesus, who's called the Messiah. I stopped in that verse 5. Simon was the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Right? We know the story of Rahab? Book of Joshua. If you remember, she was a prostitute who had despised when they came to spy at the city of Jericho. And guess what? What do you think Rahab was? We know she was a prostitute. Don't shout that out. Do you know who Rahab was? Rahab was a Canaanite. So Rahab, a Canaanite, was the great-great-great-great-great-great-grandmother of our Lord and Saviour, Jesus Christ. And so in Christ, even the Canaanites can be redeemed by the blood of Jesus. Now I feel good. (laughs) You see, in Christ, no one, the opportunity for salvation and redemption There is no one exempt. There is no one exempt. And through Rahab, we actually see a redemption of the line of Canaan, the most debauched and godless society that ever lived in the face of this earth. And that's because the gospel of Jesus breaks down every barrier, every curse, every inherited sin. He breaks it. And cancels it out forever. Paul writes about this in Galatians. In Galatians 3 he says, For in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through faith. As many of you as were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is no longer Jew or Greek. So we had the separation between Shem with the Jews. Japheth, the Gentiles of the Greeks. There is no longer slave nor free. There is no longer male and female for all of you are one in Christ. And if you belong to Christ, then you're Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. When it comes down to it, it's not going to matter if you can trace your lineage back to Sham, Shem. Start again When it comes down to it, it's not gonna matter if you can trace your lineage back to Shem, Ham, or Japheth because it's not the physical bloodlines that save us and redeem us. It's whether you're in the family of God. It's whether you're part of the seed of the woman. It's whether you've been born again by by an incorruptible seed. And that's why Christ Christ came to be the curse of sin that's a good place to land. And you know, we have to be careful that we don't separate people based on their past, based on their gender, their nationality, their skin color, their social status. Because Paul says, there's neither male nor female, Jew nor Greek, slave nor free. There are no barriers to being redeemed and saved by the blood of Jesus. None. And I believe that in the church of Jesus Christ, we should have no barriers either. We should have no barriers. I agree. I agree too. Mm -hmm. And that's the kind of church we are striving to be. That whether you are Jew or Greek, so whatever your nationality, whatever your creed, your tribe, your background, your past, where you've come from, then everything that, is, that the Holy Spirit has to offer you through the salvation of Jesus is available to you. It doesn't matter if you're slave or free, so it doesn't matter about your social status or who you think you are. What the Holy Spirit offers to you through the salvation of Jesus is available to you. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman, male or female, all of the things that the Holy Spirit has offered us through the salvation of Jesus, all the gifts are available to you because Jesus has broken every curse. And in the church... If anything looks like separation or disunity, we have to challenge it. If anything looks like someone's been left behind because of whatever comes into that context of freedom, then we have to question it and challenge it because we don't even miss out on what God is doing in any life, on what the calling of God is on any person, regardless, male, female, Jew, Greek, slave, or free. My sense this morning is, and I think this is similar to a word that was given recently by me or someone else, but there's two things at play here. One is that we discount others because of who they are. And what we're effectively doing there is we're putting a curse on that person. But God says that we should be blessing each other and building each other up and encouraging each other. And I sense that maybe that's something that you have knowingly or unknowingly done. And God just wants to offer his forgiveness to you for that today and redeem you from that, for not taking someone seriously or marginalizing them because of who you think they are. And then the other thing, similarly, but quite different that God is saying this morning is that many of us have discounted ourselves because of who we think we are, or because of our past, or who our family is, or because you're a man or a woman, or because your nationality, your skin color, your social status. And God is saying, no, no, do not discount yourself. The church of Jesus Christ, when you see it described in the book of Acts as a place where they were all of one mind, they lived in unity, they shared everything that they had, there were no barriers, there was no construct, there was really no structure other than we are all equals, we are all together because of the blood of Jesus that saved us and made us new. Because in those who belong to Christ are a new creation. Next bit say, All things have passed away, all things become new.